things came to a head at the end of 2013-14 when we failed to secure a sponsor um, for the Ashes series, even though I'd got the whole you know, personnel lined up for through the night Ashes stuff. And so I performed it, did it, and then thought, I, I can't go on with this. I'm, I'm exhausted, it's not working, uh, people are unhappy, I'm unhappy. And so I sent, I resigned from, from Test Match Sofa, resigned from the cricketer, and just sent a very speculative email to Adam Mountford, because I was expecting stuff to go back and do a proper job, which I was dreading, but mm. I thought, once again, I've got to do the responsible thing. And so I sent an email to Adam Mountford at BBC and said, you know, uh, this may sound ridiculous because we've been at loggerheads and it's all been a bit unpleasant, but is there any chance you'd um, consider giving me a go on some county commentary? Now, I want to preface this by saying that I'd been in touch with Jonathan Agnew for a bit the year before and he'd been absolutely lovely and encouraging and you know we started off with our disagreements but I'd listened to where he was coming from he'd listened to where I was coming from which was look we're harmless aren't we we're just trying to have fun he said yeah but you know you're also not paying yeah, yeah. for you're this and you're piggybacking off the back of an establishment magazine and I could sort of see where he was coming from I think you could see where I was coming from and um, I don't know how influential he was in in Adam replying and yeah. saying yeah go and do a game in two weeks if you fancy it I mean it's the quickest he's ever replied to an email I've, <laughs> I've sent it was and your fantastic. first game was was it Surrey, your beloved sorry Surrey Gloucestershire at the Oval with Mr Mark Church Mark Church the mighty Mark Church and the truly fantastic Bob Hunt one of my favourite commentators out there a, a, an absolute uh, a ball of hilarious creative energy Bob Hunt and yeah. Mark Church the Mark Church, man yeah. in cricket good morning Mr Johnny Barron <laughs> hello Mr Barron yes welcome back to our Radio 1 listeners BBC Radio how do you do that, yeah. that is that's quite good isn't it that's that my Mark Church and then well, you need I, him to get famous because you will have a you, you will have a tribute act yeah I've got a bit of a curl <laughs> I know I need him to get TMS and what was that first day like? Because obviously, oh, terrifying! Y y actually, you'd been used to having a bottle of Cab Sav in your yeah. hand and a cigarette <laughs> to, to, to get you through a That's slightly right. more relaxed commentary stint. That's right. And then now you're on the BBC. Yeah, it was very. Uh, I tell you, the thing that was hardest was simply that I wasn't watching on the TV. I mean, there were some things that suddenly were easier. I could see where the ball went because mm. on TV you can't always. And there were some things that were harder, which was people were further away, so identification was trickier and. Um, we didn't have a monitor, so we didn't have, you know, so-and-so's got how many runs, so-and-so's got how many runs, and what's his bowling figure? So you're scrabbling around looking for things, and um, the sort of vastness of what you're commentating on after peering at a screen is really quite disorienting. But also there's the responsibility. I mean, my God, this is the BBC, and whilst I don't, I genuinely don't believe, uh, Rick Marks wrote in his autobiography that, he wrote some very nice things about me, but uh, there was a line in there which was that about how he thought that secretly I was, I'd always had the ambition to be picked up by a Test Match special. And if I did have that ambition, it was not a conscious one. Yeah. I genuinely thought that what I was doing with Test Match Sofa was just coming up with a totally different way of broadcasting. And I'd sort of imagined a rugby sofa, a football sofa, a cricket sofa, an Olympic sofa. Yeah. And this is what a branch of broadcasting could look like. 
So I really didn't have any um, uh, expectation of being on the BBC, but when I was, the um, the weight of responsibility just hit hit me immediately because I thought, bloody hell, this is the national broadcaster. And I know it was o- only Surrey, Gloucestershire, but to me, as a cricket fan, it's that's huge, yeah. massive. Yeah. So I suppose uh, people say, did you find it difficult not to swear? Not at all. Because uh, I'd listened. If anything, it's harder to make a, dis- a product distinctively different with a test match sofa than it is to make the product that everybody's heard. Because I've course. listened to the product that everyone heard for years and years and years. So yeah. aping that is actually relatively easy making a program like the sofa and saying listen to us because we're different and then justifying that by actually being funny and having good content and having different stuff yeah that's way more pressurized actually but the pressure of now being on a program that is owned by the b well run by the bbc as opposed to effectively run by me where i could make whichever mistakes i wanted to before it was my program this was not the case uh, the, but the, the speed at which I started doing other things, I mean, I did a women's test match that very summer at Wormsley, and then I did my first ODIs against Australia the following summer. None of that could have happened if the county commentators hadn't been really helpful and accommodating, because they gave me the confidence, they talked me through what I needed to do. I mean, I think of Adrian Harms at Sussex, what a lovely man he was when I first went down there you know just answering my questions and putting up with the fact that here was someone some Johnny come lately who'd come charging in yeah because once I decided once I was on the BBC then I had only one goal in mind that was yeah that's my special I mean you, you you change your goals and ambitions instantly the moment you are somewhere else you know and did you feel the step up again for every time you went up a uh, sort of nonchalant level in terms of yeah. women's test a men's odi then the ashes eventually in 20 yeah well it's because of the profile of it i mean yeah. the way you feel it is actually so it's something to do with you know women's tests being down here and no 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 sorry here, it was just uh, that's why that was just naturally yeah. your progression in well, terms of what it is is actually it's it's the noise you get on social media so you know, when I did my first men's ODI, suddenly I got lots of people, you know, wishing me good luck on Facebook or wishing me good luck on Twitter. And then also, you're really open to people who don't like you. And they're perfectly entitled not to like you. So you get some quite unpleasant things said about you, uh, sometimes out of jealousy because they want to be doing it, sometimes because my style totally doesn't chime with their expectations. And that's... It, that's only to be expected. The more you put your head above the parapet, the more people experience you, the more likelihood is that you're going to discover people who really can't bear the way you do it. Uh, and that came as a bit of a shock as well because I hadn't been used to... Um, uh, you know, when you made Test Back Sofa, people only listened to it because they wanted to. So all the feedback you get is pretty much lovely, you know? When you then start appearing on a much-loved national institution like Test Match Special, then people go, oh, my God, what's he? Where's he come from? Why is he dis- he's destroying my ears? You know, but the first game I did, the first yeah. ODI, I think, I read right. through these responses, and they were nearly all really nice. And I got to one, and they said, you are the worst thing to have <laughs> appeared on Test Match Special in my 
entire life. Oh, my God. And I said, oh, God, um, when were you born? And he said, like, 1978. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> 40 years and whatever it was, best yeah. part of. And, and then you become very aware that you can't just laugh that off because you are curating a program that everybody loves. So you have a responsibility to those listeners. And whilst you know you can't please everybody. But you've got to stay true to yourself. You do you, have to stay true. You can't true. start sort of manipulating or trying to become a different person to try and... Oh, no. No. No, but what, you, but what you might do is you might, you know, on Test Mat so far, I was an exaggerated version of myself. Right. And uh, to a degree, sometimes that exaggerated person can come out on Test Mat Special. And sometimes it's... It's right. It's about, but it's about finding the right Time, moment. moment. You know, yeah. the the judgment in cricket commentary is always: is this a moment to be focusing solely on the cricket, a bit on the cricket, or really you can get away with not being on the cricket at all? And to work that out, you have to have a judge. You have to know cricket, and you have to have a judgment of cricket. Uh, but you also got to be careful of self-indulgence. And every broadcaster, to a greater or lesser degree is an egomaniac and is self-indulgent. I mean, Ali Mitchell, to virtually no degree, me to quite a high degree. So um, it's that kind of balancing act in your head, trying to remember that there are listeners out there who you know, need to know what's going on and make sure that you are doing. But sometimes, like I say, you know, be unabashed. If, we're in the, if, if Ashim Amlet's in the middle of scoring 311, a wicket's not falling. No. South Africa are on their way to 627 for two. Then at 485 for two, you are perfectly entitled to have a quirky conversation about something a little bit yeah. on the market. That was a bad day. Yeah. because yeah, well, Very hot day as well. It was, a very, it was the hottest day of 2012. Yeah. I commentated that from a windowless room at Westminster University for Test Match Sofa. Um, and it was exasperating in the extreme. Yeah, I was at the ground. It was oh. awful. Well, at least you're outdoors. Yeah, true. <laughs> Very hot in the OCS yes, though. Um, and where, well, sorry, I say where, when you made your Test Match debut, and I like to call it a Test Match debut, even yeah. though you weren't batting out in the middle, it was your Test Match debut. Yeah. Um, who were you commenting, who did you sort of open up your commentary innings with? Can you remember? See, that's weird. I can remember who I was on with first, on my first ODI, because actually that's what felt like. That felt like your final big step. Yeah, yeah, and I'll tell you, the reason is actually, uh, it's all the gubbins that's around you. You have when you do, when you do most normal games, you've got like a kubi, which is like a, it's a little box, plug some things in, and you are in charge. You know, if you do yeah. a county game, when you do an international men's game, there are engineers next door. Uh, the equipment's different, and the crowd is full, and the noise is incredible. And suddenly, you know, you're right next to those people. So the first, my first TMS Men's International, I sat down next to Everly Rainford Brent. Right. And my very first line, I remember, because the wicket had just fallen. And Alison Mitchell handed over to me. So next up, uh, for the first time on, on uh, Test Match Special, it's going to be Daniel Norcross. And my world went into a tiny point, just a tiny little black dot. And I was absolutely panic-stricken. Because I thought, my God, this is actually what I've always wanted to do since I was seven years old. But I hadn't, I don't know how I've got here. I don't know what's, I couldn't make sense of the, all the steps that had got me there. And here I was doing it. I thought, geez, you can't do this. This isn't you. You shouldn't be allowed. 
and I wanted to jump out the window and just like finish it all now, stop it. <laughs> and then I looked and there was Ebony, whom I'd worked with quite a bit on women's cricket. And I sort of calmed down a bit and Morgan was walking out to the crease and on Tasman sofa we used to call him notorious Irish foul thief, E-O-I-N Morgan. And so I just thought, go with who you are, go with what you know. And I said, walking out to crease is a notorious, notorious Irish foul thief, E-O-I-N Morgan. <laughs> Which, looking back at it now, was quite a bold move, really. Yeah. <laughs> but it was born out of an, a need to ground myself in, in what I knew and how I got there. I got there because I'd done Test Match Sofa all those years, and that's what had given me the impetus to get to where I was. So be true to it. And Ebony utterly calmed me down. And then Michael Vaughan came on 10 minutes later. I was dressed in green and accused me of looking like Kermit. And I did a Kermit Frog impersonation for one ball. <laughs> uh, for the test match, I remember that the ball-by-ballers were Simon Mann and Henry Blofeld wow. and me. Good combo. And the summarisers were Graham Swan, Michael Vaughan, Jeffrey Boycott, and it would have been Ramiz Raja, I guess. I think. He's but a I don't great, remember who was on with me with the very you. first time. I think it might have been... Swanee. And do you, like, I, I've always sort of fantasized about doing it myself, but I, I always think, like, I'd be so excited by silly little things like the media lunches. Yeah, I they're mean, great. Yeah. Well, not everywhere, but they are no. great, yeah. There's one notorious exception. Where's that? Well, no one never wants to complain about it. No, Because we don't have a right to it. But if, if Edgebaston is like, you know, the Ritz, then Headingley isn't. Right, okay. Enough said, I suppose. <laughs> Um, and was your first overseas tour to Australia for the Ashes? No, my first overseas tour was in 2016. It was in the year after I'd done that first test match. And I'd done that first test match in part because Jonathan Agnew was in Rio commentating in the dressage. So there was a, a slot opened up. Uh, and I went to Bangladesh in of that Of course, sorry, I remember that. The, no, Z- the Zafar Ansari, you were all right. watching the Bake Off together. That's yeah, right. I remember it. Sorry. That's right. And uh, I saw him, you know, reading the London Review of Books, sat down by the pool, really long articles with no, no pictures. And that's not always true of, of reading material for no, no, professional no. cricketers. It was, it, it was quite an eye-opener, lovely, lovely bloke. And it was an amazing tour because you didn't get to tour in a way that you would do normally because there'd been a terrorist incident in the artisan bakers in Dhaka back in July. So we were given a police, well, army escort wherever we went. We were put up in the team hotel. All the journalists were there, everyone, BBC, all the newspapers, all the players. There was a ring of steel around the hotel. All the roads were kind of um, cleared for us to do a, a motorcade to the ground. And you didn't really go out in the evening into town, not, not actually through fear, because, I mean, Bangladesh proved to be a lovely place with lovely people, but... When I did go out, I was followed by two men with machine guns from the army, and I thought, actually, I'm making your life more difficult. So, you know, you, and you're very conscious you're a guest. And this you, is the infamous tour where Hales and Morgan didn't travel for the ODIs. <laughs> That's um, right. We, we didn't do the ODIs, actually. Um, it was the rebirth of Batty in this That's team. right. Yeah. I say the rebirth, the short lived rebirth of Gareth Batty. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, Gareth Batty. One all end of the series, I believe it was, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Great yeah. series. Well, they, they, Bangladesh won the game in Dhaka, and it was a really brilliant experience. Um, that's what, one of the other things that happens to you when you start to work more in the game. 
is you know probably had I been you know if I was 25, the thought of England losing to Bangladesh in Dhaka would have been oh how have we done that? And then you work in the game and you see at close hand you know what a great what a good team Bangladesh are and how much it mattered to the Bangladesh people and it was a really moving experience actually watching all the the crowd not just in the ground but in the surrounding blocks of flats watching and seeing their team win and how much it meant to them it was a privilege to be there it was really amazing Uh, I just want to ask some quick questions on just like some things I've always wanted to know the answers for I mean they're not necessarily to do with your career but they are about commentary Uh, so every morning when you get into the commentary box wherever you are Edgbaston, Chittagong wherever you are um, is there somebody who's like a researcher who gives you a briefing on the day no no okay so you guys are down to your own devices in terms of uh, being up to speed with the game the stats all the things we have we have of course a scorer uh, for games so Andrew Sampson amazing guy usually yeah. truly tr- I mean he's a wizard he's, he's incredible but it's up to you to go and seek him out and ask him questions mm-hmm. um, he won't hand out a sheet as such uh, Andy Zaltzman produced the most incredible sheet for all World Cup games I mean it was a work of art I should have I'd known yeah. I would have brought it to you which was an ongoing update on the entire tournament printed on both sides of one sheet of paper but what it was was, was simply the stats the data of what had happened um, but no effectively if you if you have questions you have to ask yourself um, I would often ask the producer you know has anything come up in interviews from yesterday is there any news overnight that I need to know about but no it's entirely up to you to do that well, I remember for the Sri Lanka series just before I flew out there I think it was for the ODIs you and Zoltzman were doing a daily podcast after ODIs quite stat based I yeah. seems to remember they're very good um, so w- w- when you're travelling abroad I remember last time I ran into you uh, in the gin bar over the road from here in Tooting you told me that you were just well you it was uh, it was New Year was it I think you were just about to head to Australia uh, I believe for a couple of the Ashes tests or had you already yeah, been well out I there went, I went maybe to it was pre-New Year oh no it was when I met you here for the Grey Cricketer you were doing a, a, a podcast for the Grey Cricketer oh yeah yeah and you were about to fly out to Australia I believe and that's right you said that Valium had saved your life yeah. um, so when you went <laughs> to, Bangade- uh, to Bangladesh was that not uh, freely available oh no I have a wonderful doctor who okay um, I thought Australia was your first kind of crowning moment. You struggled for years with this. Yeah, I, I absolutely, absolutely hate flying. And uh, I went to see the doctor and told him this. And as luck would have it, he's a cricket fan who listens to TMS. Amazing. And so he sort of instantly got what I meant. And Australia was really important for me because we had so many flights. I did, I went to, I commentated four of the five test matches and went to all five. Um, did all the five one day internationals so I had to fly into Brisbane and then go around the country once and then go around the country a second time so in total I think I did like 14 takeoffs and landings or 15 well, probably more and, yeah. and is it every flight or just the long haul every ones? flight every flight, every okay. flight. because it's uh, the fear the fear is all the it's the takeoff really right I mean landing's not much fun but uh, takeoff and then so yeah. once you're in the air you're not so bad no not so bad because you, you just you have to get know. used to it but I mean, what I found with Valium is that I had exactly the same thoughts as I had without it, which is, oh, my God, we could blow up at any minute. Um, anything about, oh, my, we could, we could just die. Uh, and this made me think, yeah, and so right, okay. what? 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, look, it's not something that you should take without no, not getting at all. serious without advice. Seeking medical professional help, yeah. Uh, and I'm very lucky in that, you know, I, I say lucky, because I've used it only for flying, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's never leaked into any no. other part of my life. But I, I just found it quite funny that, well, not <laughs> funny, that, but funny in the sense that, you know, a commentator's life in cricket where you have to go to all four corners of the world, if you did have a fear of flying and no access to something to stop mm. that, you'd be absolutely fucked. I mean, you know. Well, you, it's you just, do. it's spooky. I mean, you, you do it anyway because, because if, if you're a cricket commentator, yeah, you, you have won't to. fly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, trouble, but, but you'll, you'll just utterly hate it. <laughs> and, and, and when you're working for the BBC uh, overseas, obviously you guys will get put up in hotels. I mean, these are kind of ridiculous yeah, questions, yeah. but things I've always been fascinated by. Mm. Um, and are you given, like, uh, I, I was in the Lord's Museum the other day and I saw the daily expenses which were given to the Indian cricket team when Tendulkar was captain when they went to Australia. It was fascinating. They got given 50 AUD a day to spend as they would. Ooh. But um, do you guys get given, like, an expenses thing for the day? Or yeah, the, the basic rule of thumb, I mean, for the BBC, and it's not changed since I've worked for them since 2014, and I don't know how long it's been the case, but you get the princely sum of um, £16 uh, evening meal allowance. There's a 16. Six, 16, one six. Uh, <laughs> there's a £6 breakfast allowance and a £6 lunch allowance. When you're at test matches, of course, you get those. You, you get breakfast and lunch given yeah. to you. So um, in the evening, you have £16. To Can put you not towards. put the two sixes onto the 16? No. Right, okay. No, 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 no. You've got to provide receipts for, for all these things. And quite right, too, because it's public money. Of course. Um, for me, of course, because I quite enjoy, quite enjoy a bottle of wine here of and course. there, um, £16 doesn't really go anywhere near it. No. And other broadcasting organisations that exist on subscription pay considerably more than that. Um, but, I, I mean, maybe in part that's why, you know, it costs a lot more to get a subscription service than it does for one year yeah. of the BBC. I mean, to give you an idea of, of, of cost, you know, the, the BBC licence fee is what, about 150 quid, 160 yeah, quid? Yeah, 150 quid. Yeah. If you bought a copy of the Daily Mail every day for a year, That'll cost you, what, well over 300 quid. Yeah, yeah. You'll get a newspaper for that and a website. Yeah, yeah. And the BBC provides you. I mean, I'm messianic about the BBC. I think it's the most extraordinary organisation there is. Um, but frequently, you know, one of the, I say downsides, quite understandably, you're held to account by listeners and mm. users. Of course. Who say, why am I wasting my licence fee on you? And I calculated the other day that in five years' time, each license fee payer, I think, would have paid me one pence. Wow. So when people get really annoyed with, yeah, yeah. with how much I cost them... Flick of a penny. I always, yeah, get, <laughs> I say, look, DM me, send yeah. me your address, and I'll pay you back what, what I owe you. So there is. And obviously, you know, you're away from your families for a long time, uh, fr from your wife. Yep. And I have often struggled to... You know, my dad is a avid cricket fan, and that's why I caught the bug. So is my mum. And even though she didn't uh, grow up with it, she became one through osmosis. Um, and I was wondering, is, is it possible for an obsessive to not be with a, at least someone who is happy to facilitate an obsession? That's a really good question. Um, yes, I think it is, because some of my colleagues, without naming names have wives who are supportive but certainly not particularly interested in cricket but for um, you my did, wife does your wife like it or not yeah i yeah i mean she likes she likes sport she yeah. played a lot of sport she played a lot of netball um she danced a lot she watched 
West Ham United for her sins for years and years and years. Um, she she liked cricket. She used to get autographs when she was a kid. You know, Essex is her team. Graham Gooch was her, her hero. Uh, like a lot of people, she's grown out of her childish obsessions. And she more than tolerates it. You know, she got completely into it. Did she come uh, to some of the games? Like, or not? No, not really. I should... Yeah, I suppose it's hard because you guys uh, can't be together because you're working. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. She's, she's, yeah, she's, no, what am I talking about? She has come, she's come down to Hove to watch the women's games a couple of times. Um, but, you know, I'm, I might be in Leeds or Manchester or something, so, yeah, you know, yeah. she doesn't really And is it, is to it tough being away for, you know, months on end? I said months on end, a couple uh, of months. Well, I'd be... <laughs> oh, this sounds really disloyal, but... Uh, it isn't really. I mean, it, 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 this summer it started to get tough because I did 91 days of cricket wow. in, uh, in five yeah. and a half, six months. And um, just the being away and the packing, coming back and barely, I mean, not barely seeing each other, but, you know, half the time I wasn't here was tricky. And it, I think it's tricky for her way more than it is for me, if I'm honest, because very selfishly, I adore what I do. I mean, I absolutely... Yeah. Oh, it, it, it's what's so brilliant about doing this job is that if you get an email or a phone call saying, "Can you work on such and such a day?" You go, "God, yes." Whereas every other job I've had beforehand was, "Oh no, another mm. day of work. When am I going to get a day off?" So, from a personal point of view, I'm surrounded by people who love the game. They've got massive enthusiasm for it. I've got the best seat in the house. I've I could be talking to Jeffrey Boycott or Graham Swan or Michael Vaughan or Phil Tufton or Ebony or Isha or Andrew Sampson or Ali Mitchell or anybody, you know, Simon Mann, Jonathan Agnew, about this game that I absolutely adore and I never tire of doing it. So I never tire of it. But when I went to Australia, it was a bit tough because I was out, gone for 11 weeks and Catherine came out to Australia for the sort of middle four weeks. Right. But three and a half weeks either side, you know, you, uh, yeah, you, I mean, you, you miss being around your soulmate, don't you? Yeah, but I think it's much harder for her than it is for me because I've got the distraction of, of doing the thing incredible. that I totally adore. You know? and, and, and do you guys go on like nights out? Like, with, I can imagine Tuffers like loves getting on it. And um, yeah, I mean, Tuffers actually is a, is a bit of a homeboy, so right. um, he likes to he likes to get home. Uh, but he's you know sociable too. We do. TMS nights occasionally which is really lovely being part of that and I, I, I had a few nights with Jim Maxwell this oh, I summer Maxwell, I mean man. what a guy what yeah. a, and, and to be able to yeah, talk to right. him about Australian cricket and Australian cricket stories because look you get it's a great privilege to talk to English cricketers about things you know about but you know I I get to find out, you know, what Neil Harvey was really like, what Bill O'Reilly's relationship with Bradman's like. You know, Jim Maxwell knew Alan McGilvray, who knew Bradman and, and so on and so forth, and it goes back. It's like knowing Jeffrey Boycott means you've got someone who had a relationship with Herbert Sutcliffe, who batted with Jack Hobbs, who batted with Tom Hayward, who batted with W.G. Grace. Yeah. And you've got this kind of umbilical cord link that takes you all the way back back through the mists of times but like where we started from with history so yeah you, I mean you, we do go out I mean most most of the time it's the younger ones that go out so Henry Moran and 
ebony. Yeah. You know. Anyway, I'm, look, you're in a hotel a lot of the time, um, in wherever it may be, and you're staying in the same place. And there's a long days. You know, you don't often finish, especially with overrates and weather. You might not get back to the hotel until half eight. Mm-hmm. So really, you've got enough time for dinner, a yeah. natter, a gossip, Plus and bed. Yeah. <laughs> um, and obviously, cricket nowadays especially takes up you know, two-thirds of the year. But yeah. what does Mr Norcross do for the other third? I can imagine you get a lot of uh, after-dinner speeches and things like that from a being few. a... Yeah, do a few. I mean, I don't, do, I don't have a sort of routine as such. I've uh, done some the odd school and the odd cricket club. Uh, they're more kind of in April, really, at the start of people's seasons or at uh, the end of seasons, April and September. The middle of winter... I, uh, especially now the BBC don't have regular overseas tours, um, it's a pretty bleak time. I, I do what I think what other cricket fans do. I count the days down until it's end of March, beginning of April. Um, I'll do a little bit of stuff with BT this winter on matches that are, they have the rights to Australian cricket in yeah. the UK. So I'll work with them a little bit. So um, would that be commentary and studio work? Not or? really commentary, no. It's more like the kind of linking passages okay. in oh, so and good. out. They buy, what, Channel 9 or whatever it is, commentary, do That's they? right, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, you know, I'll really miss being out there doing it and watching games, and I'll be getting more and more frustrated, and I can't... Be- you know, I'll, I'll tell you now, I, uh, every month from October to March, I divide into threes, and yeah. I break those thirds down into thirds again and so you know uh, so October that's 31 days so that's 10 hour, ten days and 8 hours so after 3 days 10 hours and 40 minutes we're a third of the way through the first third lovely <laughs> then two yeah. thirds of the way through so at the moment at the, at the time of recording yeah well the 17th of October we're past halfway. Wow. We're beyond 10% of the way from the end of the summer to the start of the summer. And do you ever, do you ever think about doing what sort of Swanee, and I know we were joking a bit about Johnny Barron, but like Swanee's managed and Compton has done it recently in doing, um, obviously the great thing about cricket is it never stops all around the world because of the way the hemispheres yep. work. Um, but do you ever think about going to the West Indies or India or South oh, Africa yeah. and doing um, a Mark Nicholas and sort of working the well, whole year round? I think about it all the time, but... Um, I'll be honest with you. I mean, TV is not really a place that uh, TV doesn't really want someone like me. And I totally get it. TV has all the time, really, ever since I was a kid, been mostly populated by ex-players because they don't need the type of broadcaster that I am. I mean, uh, the ball-by-ball commentator is about really being a verbal camera Sure. You're describing scenes trying to be as rich as possible, as well as having a knowledge of the game, of course. Whereas a camera does all that for you on TV. So what TV really tends to want is ex-players that can analyse what it is that the, the watcher can see. Um, I would love to work all year round. I would love to do uh, some TV and do things like T20, for example, which is a bit more knockabout, which would suit my style a bit more but also you know I'd love to do more I'd love to do radio around the world because it's a medium I really really like you know more people listen to cricket than watch it in this country way more partly because of the way cricket works 
So your audience is bigger, the demands are, are greater, and they're a bit richer as well. You've got the opportunity for a bit more variety in what you do, uh, and I just adore it. I mean, I'd like to branch out into doing other types of broadcasting. I'm exploring, exploring some podcasting, uh, not of this sort. Um, uh, I've got a couple of ideas for stuff to do over the winter, and, and I'm supposed to be writing a book, which is an onerous responsibility, but one What's that, that going to be about? Well, you well, will see you know, it. It's, it's sort of slightly autobiographical, and uh, it's really a book about obsession. Well. It's kind of about how cricket takes you from the seven-year-old boy sat getting sunburnt watching Viv Richards to a 50-year-old man larking well, about at Lords watching the World Cup final and well. how you kind of get from one place to the other and how mostly I think it's true of actually pretty much all professions that um, success in, in a profession is... Mm especially a creative one, is born out of real, I want to call it obsession, I think, uh, devotion. You know, people often say, and it's a phrase I hate most of all, I've worked really hard for this, I deserve it. To me, it's not a matter of how hard you work, it's, it's how much you want to do it. It shouldn't be hard work. No. It doesn't feel, to me, it doesn't feel like hard work, no. working... You know, being around through the night commentating on cricket to me that's because I would rather be yeah. doing that than doing anything else so yeah, yeah. it's not hard it's fun and if you enjoy something and you are completely steeped in it yeah. then you'll probably end up being quite good at it um, just as you were saying um, then about how you've gone from a seven year old boy obsessed with cricket to now working as a lead commentator on TMS I was thinking do you ever lie in bed now and think to yourself, of course, like, I am now a TMS commentator and that was always the way things were going to be, <laughs> which obviously now going back even five years or six years, it was impossible for you to think that this would happen. But like destiny, it, you mean? Exactly. Do you ever feel that there was a natural, uh, now you can look back and you've actually achieved the dream, that even though you took a weird uh, road and actually you carved your own apprenticeship you didn't even serve one you created a company to be able to do your the, the greatest apprenticeship yeah did you just feel that now looking back well of course like this is just the way my life has led me to ultimately doing what i was destined to do or do you just think it's a crazy chance of i don't know um no i uh I sort of feel like a mixture of the two, really, which is how, do, how does that work? How can you have a mixture of destiny and, and, uh, and pure chance? I think what I mean by that is that I was obviously more cut out to be a Tasman Special Commentator than most people are because I'd spent my entire life thinking about cricket, watching cricket, listening to cricket, hearing it. So... Um, it's not a surprise that my urges sent me down this path. Sure. But it's total good fortune and the support of people that have made it possible. It's the support of the people at Test Back Sofa, it's the support of people at BBC, it's the support of my wife. Um, it's actually the tragedy of my parents' death allowed me to keep going when 
I wouldn't have done otherwise. I wouldn't have been able to keep going for a couple of years to make Test Match Sofa be what it was. I'd have had to get another job, you know, and um, uh, and that would have brought an end to it completely. So uh, good fortune comes into it. But what I would say is a really spooky, weird thing happened to me. I did a, a life coaching course, partly as, as really as a favour to a friend who needed to do needed to have twelve case studies in order to be accredited, and I was quite. Um, skeptical about life coaching thought it was a bit daft really and I went through the whole course and at the end of it you know, some good things have come out of it but, well, it's quite strange a lot of it's really about ordering your life and, and pursuing what you know you want to do but by removing barriers and saying well you can do these things and, and all you need is for help to do this and the other and at the time I was still working um, in the city in financial services anyway I saw this guy uh, a couple of years back and he said, uh, he asked me how I was. I said, I can't believe it. I just can't believe what's going on. I'm, I'm on TMS. I'm just, like, it's really spooky. I pinch myself every day. And he said, I'm not surprised at all. He said, what do you mean? Said, well, you, when you wrote your letter to yourself from the future. I said, what, what are you talking about? And I had no recollection of this, but he showed it to me. It was in my handwriting, written in 2007. And you're asked to so write a letter to yourself from 10 years into the future. And you have no barriers on what you're going to be doing and he says you know just put down your perfect world and I had written I'm at Lords in the commentary box commentating Australia versus England for test match special yeah. now of course in those days uh, 10 years would have worked but there wasn't an actual series in 2017 because they shifted it didn't they they 2013 15 and then 19 but so <laughs> So in my brain, I'd obviously like gone, oh, well, 10 years, that'd be an Ashes series. Oh, well, if I could put anything, I'd be, literally yeah. anything, I'll put that in. I mean, it took two more years for that to happen, uh, commentating from Lords against it's Australia. Amazing. But And I don't remember writing it. So obviously, I wanted to do it so much. And uh, it was in me, uh, in my conscious as well as my subconscious, but I weirdly wasn't conscious of it. And finally, if you had to have one regret, now this doesn't have to be a regret which you sort of are angry about, but it could be uh, someone not being able to hear your work or something like that. What, what, what would be your biggest regret um, for, throughout your career, not just in cricket or... I say your career, throughout your life, if you had to pick one. Well, one of my bigger regrets is I didn't study history and ancient history at university. I think I'd have got more out of that. Uh, but then it would have taken me on a different path. Um, biggest regrets I don't I mean when you find yourself doing exactly what you want to do <laughs> for a living it's quite hard to find regrets I think I have regrets for some of the people who are on test match sofa there are a couple of guys at least who I think would have made really good commentators one of whom emigrated to South Africa kind of bef just before um, I started working more for the BBC and I think he'd have he could have had a, a good career with the BBC as a sports journalist so I suppose if I'm going to say my I'll tell you all right I'll tell you my regret is I didn't do it earlier um, I don't know whether it would have made any difference and I'm not sure that I would have got on to test match special any earlier actually because if you look at the personnel that were there yeah. you know Christopher Martin Jenkins Henry Blofeld of course um, I don't know if I'd maybe got into broadcasting 
when I was younger. I think I was quite scared of broadcasting as a younger man, and I didn't really, I, I saw it as performance and was quite, that's why I wanted to write, because you're away from the camera and other people are doing the performing for you, you know? Um, what I didn't realize was that cricket is not like performance in the same way, because essentially you're talking about what you know and love. So all, most of the nerves disappear because suddenly, you know, you're on really, really safe ground. And I guess it would be safe to say that, yeah, if I had a regret about myself, it would have been that I wish back in probably 1994 or five when I'd stopped doing quiz machines, I didn't just go straight to the BBC and try to work in local broadcasting. But like I say, I'm not sure that it would necessarily have helped me get to where I am now because I don't, I think part of the reason I'm on Test Match Special is because I had to go through this unconventional route yeah. to find the voice that's my voice rather than the voice that's manufactured by, Others, you yeah. know, working in broadcasting from an early age. So in a way, I think I've been quite lucky because I came as a, a fully fledged human as a 40 year old into talking rather than as that kind of slightly uncertain 23 year old maybe it was almost the untrained you know journalistic instincts which are drummed into you if you go to those colleges which have given you your personality yeah. your edge and your ability to shine um in comparison to others around you anyway i'll let you go because i know you have to go dan thank you thank so you. so much for, for doing that it's incredible well no thank you it's been great fun yeah thank you cheers, cheers. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Home and Hose podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please feel free to share it amongst friends, families, loved ones, colleagues, and even enemies. And please rate us and comment below. Until next time, thanks for listening, and see you then. <laughs>